turn in our Bibles again to the, uh, the book of Acts, and uh, we're looking this morning at page 1716 in your pew Bibles, 1716, and that's Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. So last week we looked at Acts 13 in the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys, and uh, I'm going to put a, a map up here quickly as we dive into chapter 14. So where you see all the ink, um, this is kind of an expanded view of Africa and then Asia and Europe. Where you see all the ink, those are Paul's missionary journeys. We'll get in a little closer in the next slide. Um, so you can see a little bit more of North Africa and then the Middle East. And Turkey is where um, especially Paul's first journey takes place. And now as we get a little further in, um, you see Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were sent out from last Sunday. And uh, they're going to sail over to Cyprus and then back up uh, to Pamphylia, which is sort of on the left there. And that's, uh, that's still Turkey. It's viewed as Greece in ancient times. Um, and then the apostles are going to go up north to another Antioch. So don't get confused. There's a second Antioch, it's called Pisidian Antioch. The first Antioch is in Syria. So this is Pisidian Antioch. That's um, um, where the disciples or apostles will go. From there, they're going to go to Iconium, which is where we'll start chapter 14, and then um, to Lystra and Derby. So let's, let's read that account uh, now. <clears throat> so this is Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 13, the disciples were in Pisidian Antioch. Now they are in Iconium. And uh, let's take a look at Acts 14. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. And there they spoke effectively that, or so effectively, that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But... The Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, um, together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian or cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra, so here we kind of get a close-up now of, of Lystra. <clears throat> in Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth who had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. And if that sounds like a very similar story to one you've heard earlier, it is. It's very similar to when Peter and John healed uh, the lame man in the temple courts back in chapter 3. Uh, we'll go on. Verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us 
in human form. Now that's probably a language that Paul and Barnabas did not understand. It was a very local language. Um, Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus whose temple was just outside the city brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for, each, or for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch. So this was the original Antioch in Syria where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Formulas patterns, blueprints. We all seem to want a formula these days, a formula that we can follow to help us reach our goal. Think uh, just a moment about uh, NFL football. It seems to be a popular thing on Sundays. There's sort of a formula for how to become a winning franchise these days. It goes something like this. First, you find yourself a young, um, good-looking coach kind of a GQ kind of coach, maybe in his early 30s. Um, he should be able to handle an iPad, an iPad well, a press conference even better. So you find a coach like that, and then you find yourself a high draft pick quarterback, someone who's really good but won't cost you a lot of money. Um, and you've got that first, what, three, four, five-year window with that quarterback, and you use all that money then to buy a couple of really good receivers and a couple of really good defensive ends, and you just might win a Super Bowl or be that successful franchise. That's your formula for success. 
sort of in the NFL. I don't know if it works or not. I don't even know if it's a very good formula. I don't even know if it is a formula. We'll just start there. But I'm amazed at how popular formulas are today. And not just in sports, but in religion as well. We have formulas for, you know, how to be a good church, a successful church. We have formulas about how to do missions. We even have formulas about how to do life. Let's just think about the formula for missions um, a few minutes. Much of the North American church today seems to think that that there is a simple formula for how to do missions. We just have to find what it is. We just have to know the blueprint and follow the blueprint to success. And we see evidence of this everywhere in the way churches try to sort of copy one another. Copy whatever is successful over there, we'll bring it over here and it'll be successful here. This goes all the way back to the 1960s, friends, maybe even before that. But some of you will remember uh, one of the, the great preachers, uh, Robert Schuller. Schuller actually hailed from one of those good Dutch reform breeding grounds in Sioux, uh, Sioux County, Iowa. Um, but when he got to California and he started his church there, he did sort of a new thing, right? He started his church in a drive-in theater. And so all you had to do was drive up your car to the little speaker and he got up on top of the concession stand and, and he would preach to all the people in their cars. And when he had a little success with that, he, um, he actually started a hybrid church where he had his own building and you could go inside and worship or you could stay in the parking lot in your car and still have that, that drive-in feeling. So that was kind of successful uh, this was back in the 60s already. His, his church became what was later referred to as an empire. Okay, an empire, the Crystal Cathedral, you may have heard of that. So this was 60s, uh, 70s. When I was in seminary in college, so this is the 80s and 90s, there was actually a drive-in church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay, let's copy what was done in California. Somebody had success there with mission. Let's try it over here. And I'm not sure if we forgot maybe about winter and heaters and defrosters and all of that kind of stuff, but um, that church may still be going. I don't, I don't even know. But it, it's just an example of how we tend to copy the blueprint. There's got to be a formula for how we do missions. And this is the way it's been for quite a while now. Let's just do it like they did it. Then you get to a chapter like Acts 14. And I think this chapter, at the very least, ought to make us question our formulaic methods. Help me find the formula here, okay? Let's begin in verse 1. Paul and Barnabas are now in Iconium, and they're speaking in the synagogue in verse 1. And you should ask the question, perhaps, why are they in Iconium? What brought them to Iconium? And to answer that question, you have to go back into chapter 13 and verse 50 there tells us why they were working in Antioch and in Pisidian Antioch, this is, and they were having some success, but then the Jews began to stir up the people in the synagogue and it wasn't long before they ran Paul and Barnabas out of town on rails, okay? And verse 51 indicates that Paul and Barnabas actually shook the dust from their feet 
as they left in protest, in protest against them, and, and then they went from there to Iconium. Okay? So, they go to Iconium, why? Because of mistreatment. Because of um, animosity that they found in Pisidian Antioch. Now, what happens in Iconium? So now we're in chapter 14. Well, they go into the synagogue, they preach and teach, and, and, and that seems to have become sort of their pattern, their method, and both Jews and Gentiles believe, so they find more immediate success. But then you get to verse 2, and verse 2 tells us that once again the Jews stir up more animosity and more persecution against the apostles. So what do they do? Do they leave Iconium just like they left Antioch, and do they, you know, wipe the dust from their feet? and move on? No. That's what we would expect, perhaps, if you were following the formula. But you look at verse 3 and it says, so, which has the sense of therefore. In other words, because of this treatment, because of this animosity, what do you read there? Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. So when they run into animosity in Antioch, they leave, shake the dust from their feet. They get the same kind of treatment here in Iconium. What do they do? They say, we better stay here longer and keep teaching and keep preaching. We need to spend more time here. What is the pattern? But that's not the end of the story. In verse 5, we discover that there's a plot afoot in Iconium to stone the apostles. And so they do hightail it out of there at that point. So maybe we have another formula. If there's violence involved, maybe that's the cue then to quit preaching. That's the cue to leave a town and, and, and never go back. But then you read that Paul and Barnabas, well, they show up in Lystra, where Paul actually is stoned, right? He's stoned and, and left for dead. But do they, do they quit preaching? Do they shake the dust from their feet not really he sort of takes his time leaves town the next day they go on to derby they do more preaching they evangelize more people more people coming into the church and then you get the real head scratcher because from derby they go back they go back to lystra they go back to iconium they go back to antioch all the places where they've been mistreated all the places they've been persecuted, they go back to those places to encourage the churches, to strengthen the churches, and to continue to bring them the gospel. Okay? Which spoils our attempt at another formula, doesn't it? It would seem that violence would be a very, very good excuse to abandon a place. But apparently that's not the case. That's not the case in all circumstances. Which, friends, is, is sort of crushing to those of us who like formulas. I mean, if you like predictability, if you prefer patterns, if you like, you know, a God who always responds in the very same way, if that's what you prefer, following a pattern to following the Holy Spirit, which seems to be a whole different ball game, right? Following the Holy Spirit seems to require prayer and, and fasting and discernment and sacrifice. 
and doing one thing in one circumstance and then perhaps doing something very different in the exact same circumstance. If you prefer following the pattern as opposed to the spirit, well then I think we're left just scratching our heads. So here's my assertion this morning, and that is the only way you can account for the apostles' behavior in this chapter is that they're not following a formula and they're not following a pattern. They are following a living God. They're following a living God. Let me just point to three things that I think attest to that fact. Okay? Something which which may be eye-opening, strangely, for a church, that we would follow a living God more than patterns and formulas. But let me give you three reasons why I think this is the case. First of all, Paul and Barnabas see themselves as being sent by God. They are sent by God. If you, if you uh, look at verse 26, sort of at the end of the chapter here, you know, Paul and Barnabas get back to Syria and Antioch and they get together with the church and they just sort of go over all that's happened. And what they say in verse 26 there is they sail back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. Antioch was the place that sent them out. You, you read that in chapter 13. We, we read that last week. In fact, it's, it's kind of funny because the scripture says they were sent by the church and they were also sent by the Holy Spirit as if it's almost one and the same. But the point is that, that they were sent on this mission. And then there, there's more proof of that and it sort of gets at a conundrum that, that has stymied theologians for quite some time and that is the title Apostles. Okay? It seems as if the New Testament uses that title, Apostle, as sort of an official title for those who have um, been eyewitnesses to all the events of Jesus. So they walked with Jesus, they, they heard his teaching, they saw his miracles, they witnessed his death, they witnessed his resurrection, they witnessed his ascension into heaven. Those are the apostles, right? They're, they're the eyewitnesses. Apostles actually means sent ones, very simply. And so these would be the ones who have been sent by Jesus himself. But then you get to Acts chapter 14, and twice you find that word, and it's used in reference, I think in verse 4 and 14, it's used in reference both to Paul and Barnabas. Now, now you could make some kind of case that, that Paul was actually an apostle, an eyewitness to Christ, because Jesus did appear to Paul on the road to Damascus. But you can't make a similar argument for Barnabas. So why does Luke call Barnabas an apostle? And it seems as if he is using that word in the sense of these are the sent ones. And who are they sent by? They're sent by the church. They're sent by the church in Antioch. And what did we say last week about that church? We said it's a rooted church. In other words, the church in Antioch was formed by the same witness of the apostles as the church in Jerusalem. And those apostles who started the church in Jerusalem were formed by the teachings of Jesus himself. And Jesus himself was the revelation, the full revelation of God his Father, right? 
And so it's the Father who reveals himself through Jesus, who reveals himself through the apostles, through the church in Jerusalem, and then the church in Antioch. And it's Antioch who then sends out Paul and Barnabas. They send out the apostles on the mission. And so really, these two were sent out, not just by the church, they're sent out by Jesus Christ himself. They're sent out by God himself. This is, again, God's mission that people are on. And Paul and Barnabas had that sense about them. As they go out onto the field, they have no idea what they are going to encounter. They have no idea if their gospel is going to take hold or if it will be rejected, if they're going to be welcomed with open arms or if they're going to be stoned. But they go because they are what? They are sent. They are sent. And friends, in the church, we are the people of God who have been called. We are the ecclesia called out of the world. We mentioned that last week. But we are also the sent ones. And every day when we, when we leave this church on Sunday, we should go with that sense that I am now being sent by the church, sent by Jesus Christ into the world right? Into my workplace, into my marriage, into my parenting, into my school, into every different area of life that God has called us. We have been sent to be his disciples, to declare his message, sent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, it's only when you, when you begin to see every day, every moment that I have been sent by God himself, it's then that we forget about formulas and patterns and, and, and how much we're going to be loved or rejected. We go because that's who we are, sent by God. Okay? That's, that's just the first, the first piece of evidence, right, that, that this wasn't about a formula. This was about following God. Uh, the second way we account for that um, for this kind of behavior of the apostles is that it's clear that God is alive and at work in them. Okay, this is not a dead God that they are following. This is not just a name. This is a living God who is alive and who is at work through them. Okay, think again of this regathering of the church at Antioch, verse 27. They share about their mission they reported what? All that God had done. Those aren't just holy words. They believed this, that God was at work. They reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Friends, they didn't need a formula to follow because God was at work. And they knew that he was at work. And he was at work through them. Now, Luke gives us a close-up of the apostles' ministry in Lystra. I just want to look at that with you for a moment. There's got to be a reason why he does this, right? He doesn't do this with Derby or any of the others. What happens in Lystra? Well, what I want you to see here is that Paul and Barnabas, they do have sort of a formula when they go into a new town and start proclaiming God's word. First, they, uh, the first three verses there, I should say, tell us that pattern. They speak the good news, so they preach the word, and then they follow up that word with signs and wonders. 
that sort of um, confirm the word that they've just spoken, that this is actually God's word. And this has been a pattern um, not just for Paul and Barnabas, but it's been a pattern throughout, throughout the book of Acts, right? Proclaim the word of God and then confirm that it was the word of God with signs and, and wonders of some kind. And that's the pattern that we see here in Lystra as well. A lame man is in the audience, right? He hears Paul preaching the gospel, preaching the word, and then Paul follows up his sermon by healing that man with signs and wonders. And then what happens? Everything goes sideways. Doesn't follow the pattern, right? They didn't count on this variable, and that is everybody wants to worship them and make sacrifices to them. All of a sudden, they're the gods, okay? Now, that's a bit of a curveball. Like I said, they didn't see this coming. It wasn't part of the formula. What's happening here? Well, what's happening is there actually was a a popular legend at this time, and you can find it written um, by the Latin poet Ovid. He records this legend, and it was a legend that in this very region of the world, okay, Um, This region was visited by the gods Zeus and Hermes. And when those gods came to this place and visited, all right, they were not shown any hospitality by the thousand that they visited except for one elderly couple who took them in and showed them hospitality. And that one elderly couple was rewarded for that. But what happened to the other thousand? Well, they were destroyed in a flood. Okay, so the gods took retribution on those people who did not show them hospitality. Now you see what's happening here in this story? By healing this man, okay, by their signs and wonders, all the locals think that the gods have come back. Okay, only only the gods can do signs and wonders, can, can perform healing. And so what they're thinking is, Oh, no, Zeus and Hermes have come back again to give us another chance. And this time we better get it right. And so the people are stumbling over themselves to make sure that Paul and Barnabas feel like they are honored and they come out with the sacrifices and and they want to worship these guys. And and do do you recognize what's happening, though? The gospel message has just been absorbed into a pagan narrative, a pagan story. I mean, Paul and Barnabas were were preaching one thing. They thought they were preaching one message, but what the people heard was a totally different message. And instead of worshiping God, instead of worshiping Jesus Christ, they want to worship Paul and, and Barnabas. Now, I just want to pause there for a moment And this is a bit of a sidetrack, but this kind of thing happens all the time in missions, friends. And it doesn't matter if you're doing missions to people across the ocean or across the street or across the kitchen table with your kids. All of those people that we are doing missions with, they have a narrative in their own minds. Okay? And sometimes that narrative just absorbs the very gospel that we are trying to proclaim. All right? We don't have a lot of time, but just let me give you 
one simple example. What's, what's kind of a popular narrative in our culture today? It's a narrative that our kids hear all the time. It's a narrative that the people you work with hear all the time. That narrative is that the most important thing in the world is me. Okay? I deserve the very best. How often do you hear that kind of thing? You hear it on car commercials. You hear it everywhere. I deserve the very best. I deserve to be happy. Why? Because I am so important. It's, it's this narrative that basically we are our own gods. There are no other gods. We are the gods. And therefore, everything in life should work in a way that blesses me, that makes me happy and successful and on and on and on. Now think about that story that's, that's sort of on a loop in our heads and it plays over and over and over again. And we go into that kind of situation and, and we declare the gospel. And what gospel do we declare? Well, God is love. God loves us. And what do we think? Well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, who wouldn't love me? And, and, and God is merciful. <clears throat> well, yeah, that makes sense. I make mistakes. Um, but... I mean, that, that shouldn't do me in. <coughs> Excuse me. And we keep going with that message, right? God came into this world and he died for you because he loved you so much. <clears throat> and what do we think? What do we hear? Well, of course. I mean, that makes sense, right? Um, I'm a pretty valuable person. Why wouldn't God do that? Um, why wouldn't he die for me? I mean, I'm worth it. I'm worth it. And friends, you can go on and on with that narrative. And we proclaim a gospel so often that fits right into it, but it's not heard. The gospel that we are declaring is not heard. And ask yourself, how do we know this? How do we know that we're hearing a different gospel than the one that's proclaimed? Well, we look at our lives, okay? And we look at the lives of our children. And here's the question. Is there any room for suffering? Often not. If anything makes me unhappy, if anything is hard, if anything brings me adversity, then it must not be from God. Because God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be content. And if I'm not, then it can't be from God. And friends, think about the Jesus narrative. The Jesus narrative. The Jesus who had to go to a cross and pay for our sins. That's not in our narratives today. But don't lose hope, okay? Don't think, well, then I just ought to quit declaring the gospel to my neighbors or my workplace, my kids, my parents, whoever it is. Don't, don't go that route. There is hope because of what happens here in Leicester. What happened? If you notice, God is at work because Paul pivots his whole message on a dime. 
he begins to understand what's going on here. He's probably even heard Ovid's account before. And he begins to understand here, and he pivots his message. And his message goes somewhat like this. All of a sudden, it shifts, and it says, you know what? We came to declare that there is one God, creator of heaven and earth. He's not like your puny little vain little gods. Okay? He's the real deal. And he created all things. And that God, he has been among us the whole time. It's not just that he visited us once and we missed him. He's been among us the whole time and we've missed him. He's been the creator of the world. He created all things. He's been providing all things for you. Joy, happiness, food, all of that stuff came from him. And you know what? We don't even recognize it. We overlook it. But there's hope because God has allowed the nations to overlook it for a time. For a time. But now, says Paul, now is the time that that God has come among us in the person of his own son, Jesus, and he has visited us, not, not, friends, to destroy us, not to kill us and get revenge on us, but he's come to die for us so that we can have life. Paul sort of absorbs that pagan story into the story of the gospel and retells it. And he says, don't miss this Jesus Christ again. He came for you. Don't miss him. It's urgent. Now, a lot of people, they, they, they see what Paul has done here and they think, wow, he's just an incredible guy. He, he is so brilliant. And, and I think he was a brilliant guy. But I don't think that's what Luke is trying to tell us. He's not... He's not proclaiming how brilliant Paul is. He's saying that there is a living God at work here who knows the stories of the pagans and who will give us the right words, the right message to respond. And so don't give up hope, friends. Don't give up because that same God is at work in you. What we have to do is let that God teach us the narratives that are out in the world today and teach us our own faith so very, very well that we can distinguish what the real gospel is from the narratives that are out there and we can tell the love of Jesus as it needs to be heard. God is at work. God is at work. Don't give up hope. Don't say, well, I could never, uh, you know, could never defend that story. Last thing, last thing that accounts for the apostles' behavior, and that is, I think, that they have learned another formula, a different formula from that of the world, and it's the formula of the life of Jesus Christ. It's a formula, friends, that you and I have to learn, and that sounds strange to say in a Christian church, but it's a formula that we have to learn, the narrative of Jesus What is that narrative? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A Savior who loves and dies for the very people who are trying to kill him. That's a strange narrative. Um, 
the latest issue of The Voice of the Martyrs uh, turned out to be very timely. The editor there talks about um, the histories of violence in the Near East and the Middle East, um, places that are replete with violence and instability. He says there's a dark heart of vengeance that's at the root of the problems there. And he mentions on a personal and local level things like honor killings within Muslim families. At a regional level, a, you know, a 1,400-year history of violence within the Muslim, you know, Sunni-Shiite conflict. Um, State-sponsored terrorism against Jews and Christians. A fallen definition of honor that makes people consider revenge essential to their dignity. And then he points out that that formula, that blueprint, is not just in the Middle East, right? It's right here, right here among us, right here in America. He points out how revenge stories are just commonplace today, especially in, in Hollywood, as a person, you know, takes matters into his or her own hands to repay any enemy with violence, right? That's what we do. It's become the pattern of life. It's become a formula. And now we see it playing right out again in the Middle East, right? As, as now there's war with Israel and Hamas. And we still hear words, the same words we've heard over and over again. Revenge, retaliation. Got to protect our pride, our dignity. We got hurt, we need to hurt someone else. One thing you notice when Paul and Barnabas are out on their mission journeys, they go and revisit those places of Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And revenge is the farthest thing from their minds. The farthest thing from their minds. Instead, what they say is, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must absorb many hardships, many persecutions. Suffering is expected. It's not vindicated, it's absorbed. And again, the apostles don't follow the formulas of the world they follow the formula of Jesus. Jesus. And sometimes, friends, I worry that we forget about Jesus. We forget about his formula. And it's an easy thing to do. When we run into some kind of adversity, some kind of animosity in our mission or in life, what do we do? We turn in the other direction, we head the other way, and we say, that must not be from God. God would never want that for me. And we go somewhere else. That's not part of the Jesus narrative. Now, it doesn't mean that we always head into the suffering and the persecution. It's not the story of Paul and Barnabas either. But again, they prayed, and they fasted, and they worshipped, 
and they read God's word and they were led by the Holy Spirit so that they knew when it was appropriate to stay and to hold fast and when it was appropriate to move on. There was no formula other than listening to the Holy Spirit. What do we do when God calls us and sends us into situations that sometimes you just wonder if God is there? You know, Jackie and I have always sort of felt called to to foster um, kids and even to adopt. And um, some of you know this too, that things have not always gone all that swimmingly. And there have been some really, really tough times. Times when you wonder, God, did we get our signals crossed here somewhere? Because we thought you wanted us to do this, and man, is it hard. And it doesn't seem like we're accomplishing what we're supposed to accomplish here. And I know that many of you have experienced those same kinds of thoughts and feelings in your callings and in the places to which you have been sent. And you think, God, did we get our signals crossed here somewhere? And I just want to encourage you, friends. Don't give up. Don't let a little suffering let you f- or make you forget the Jesus formula. And don't let a little suffering make you forget the first two points of this sermon. That you were sent by God. And God is active and alive in what you are doing. He is. Don't let a little suffering discourage you. God is still at work. Friends, there is no formula that says if you're doing it right, it's going to end with, you know, hundreds of converts, and it's going to end with lots of affirmation, you know, hugs and kisses and slaps on the back. I mean, that happened in Lystra to Paul and Barnabas, right? And it was all wrong. And then they were stoned, and it was all right. Just remember that Jesus has his own formula, and it goes like this. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. That's the formula. Listen to what F.F. Bruce writes about that. He says, Luke records the irresistible progress of the gospel. In other words, this will happen. The gospel will go out to the ends of the earth. Converts will come in. God will be glorified. It will happen. But, he says, but he does so in no triumphalist spirit. Rather, he makes it clear that the road his heroes were traveling was the way of the cross. That's the only formula here. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are a living, mighty, 
loving God. And we seek to follow you. Come among us in the person of your Holy Spirit. Burn within us so that all the sin is burned away. And make us holy through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And fill us with Jesus himself. Fill us with your story, with your narrative. Make us imitators of Christ in all that we do. So that as you send us out into the world, we may declare the true gospel to everyone who will listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.